your co-founder or your founder or co-founder, and then you raise money and you transition from being a business owner to someone who has an ownership stake in a business and is also an employee of that business. And you need to understand that, that when you take on other people's capital, um, that you're running the business as a, with a fiduciary obligation and you are not guaranteed a job there. And you, it is not up to you. Your, your interest is not the only interest anymore. Welcome to The Distillery, where we talk to entrepreneurs, innovators, and rule breakers about the challenges they face and ultimately overcome. Today, I am so excited to have Justin Dangle on the show. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me. Um, So, let's get right to it. Um, We were talking a little bit before we came on about Ready Responders. Um, I first learned about Ready Responders uh, about almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. Um, So tell us about what Ready Responders is. Sure. Ready Responders is an on-demand network of EMTs, nurses, paramedics, and other healthcare professionals. And we've uh, built some proprietary technology that has some similarities to Uber or TaskRabbit in that people can log in or log out when they're available. And we can dispatch them anywhere uh, in New Orleans. Typically, we get there within 10 minutes. And There's a few different programs that we run. One is uh, a mobile urgent care program where anyone can call us through 211. Uh, We also get calls from the hospital system and other places uh, for people that may need a home visit. And we go on scene. We give people a basic assessment to make sure they're safe to be at home. And then typically a doctor comes into the living room via video on an iPad that all of our people carry. We can handle just about everything an urgent care visit can handle. We can prescribe medications and provide basic treatments, and then if somebody needs a follow-up appointment with a specialist or with a primary care doc, we uh, help arrange that and arrange the transport. So would I be correct to explain it as the Uber of urgent care service? I guess um, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. So we don't provide transportation. None of our people drive anyone anywhere. We're not an ambulance service Mm -hmm. in any way. Um, But in that we're bringing mobility uh, to the healthcare space and the sort of on-demand service that people have come to expect for transport, uh, we bring to healthcare. And, you know, if we can figure out how to help people get a ride uh, quickly, we ought to be able to figure out how to get them, help them get healthcare quickly. And really fundamentally, most of the patients we work with are on, on Medicaid. Uh, most of them are, are folks that are uh, tend to be poor, tend to have serious health problems, that tend to have trouble accessing the system. And like a lot of problems in our society right now, we haven't really figured out how to deal with and support people that are sick or have behavioral health issues. And right now we're tending to, to dump them into the 911 system and we're tending to dump them into the emergency department system. And we have great professionals at New Orleans EMS and the folks in the emergency departments at New Orleans East and UMC and Oxnard are great, but they don't really have the resources to deal with the sort of everyday health concerns of chronically ill patients or just people that don't have good access. So the whole point of this project is to help help provide that support for people. And we're doing it. Uh, we launched in uh, at the end of June. Uh, over the next month, we'll see do something like 2,000 in-home patient visits. So it's been growing very rapidly. And people love it. Um, patients uh, are, uh, to use a consumer marketing vernacular, or net promoter scores are, you know, close to the 80s right now. So that's about as good as you can be. And um, things are off to a good start. So I was really interested in the concept of ready responders when I when I first met you and, and first learned about it. Can you tell me about the backstory? How how did this start? 
Sure, sure. So there's a program that, that I, I was, a, as we talked about before, doing some work with an NGO in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And one of the places that we were active was, uh, was in Israel. And uh, in Israel, they have a program that's a little bit similar to this that kind of inspired it. And uh, I thought it was a cool idea. I was surprised to hear that we hadn't done anything like it in the U.S. So I called up the only person that I knew, which was my friend Ben Swig. And Ben, uh, at the time, was a paramedic in New Orleans and had done a lot of work with the the system. He also has an MBA and a master's of public health. So I, I thought he'd be a pretty good person to talk to about uh, doing something in the uh, in the medical and particularly in the EMS space. And uh, we spent about two hours talking about it on the phone. And at the end of it, he said, if you, if you want to start this company, I'll be your co-founder. And that's how we got going. What's the company in um, Israel called? It's uh, not a company. It's actually a, a nonprofit called United Hatzalah. Okay. Um, and it works with Magen Davida Dome, who is the national dispatch system there who's a partner of ours in this program, and they do stuff uh, throughout Israel, but also in East Jerusalem, and, um, you know, they they, uh, they work with everybody, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian, uh, and it's a great program that we find really inspiring. It's it's quite a bit different than what we ended up doing, but it's still, uh, it's cool, and it really inspired what we're up to. So could you help paint the picture for our listeners um, of how would, if you were someone using Ready Responders, what would that look like? So you could call two one one and uh, um, uh, get us in, and you'll talk to somebody in our call center. Does that mean you're if you're in need of urgent care? Does yeah, that mean so if you're if you, you want to go to the hospital? Yeah. Or? So if you're if you're not feeling well, mm-hmm. um, and it's not an emergency, so you're not having symptoms of a heart attack, for okay. example, um, you can call us at two one one, and you press nine, and that goes directly to us, and we'll ask you a few questions to make sure you don't need to go right to the hospital. And most of the time, uh, we'll send somebody directly to your house. They'll get there within five to ten minutes. They'll ask you some more questions to try to figure out, uh, you know, how, how to best be helpful. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, uh, we'll we'll then get a doctor uh, on the. Uh, it, we'll we'll bring a doctor into your living room via video. Uh, so you and the doctor, uh, together with our responder, will figure out uh, what the next steps are health wise. And that could be getting a prescription. It could be. Uh, arranging a follow-up appointment. It could be dealing with uh, minor care, um, all those sorts of things, and then uh, help you avoid the need to go to the emergency room, Mm -hmm. which is typically a three- to five-hour wait and very expensive, or the need to go to urgent care. And then uh, typically after we've seen somebody, we'll follow up to make sure that they're staying on course and they're staying healthy. So we'll typically call the next few days. Um, And so um, you are piloting this in New Orleans? Or New Orleans will be your first city? Yeah, I would say we've launched it here in New Orleans. Okay. So pilot implies we're testing. Okay. Um, we, we've sort of already, even though we're pretty young, validated that people like it, people use it, and that the medical outcomes are what we and uh, our partners in the hospital system and the insurance world want to see. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of full speed ahead and growing. Uh, we'll be, uh, we're expecting to launch another city in Louisiana. We haven't announced it yet, but... You can probably guess which one it is. We're expected to launch another city in Louisiana in the next three months. Is that, it Baton Rouge? Uh, we haven't made any announcements yet. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, and then uh, we're planning on launching three cities out of uh, out of state next year. We okay. also haven't announced those yet, but um, <laughs> uh, you'll be the first to know. Okay. We like the scoop here. Um, okay. So let's say I am – I have actually um, – 
been a recipient of Medicaid before. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's say I am not feeling well, um, but I don't want to go to the emergency room. I would call. I would use ready responders. I would call. I would Mm -hmm. have the service um, provider. And then my insurance would be billed? Exactly, yeah. There's no out-of-pocket uh, cost for Medicaid uh, uh, patients for the program. Okay. <clears throat> it's fully covered by uh, uh, most of the Medicaid payers in the state, and um, uh, it, it provides uh, access to basic care. And I think, you know, looking at th- this community and many communities around the country, access to basic care could be really hard. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, nearly half of all Medicaid patients go to the emergency room at least once a year, mm-hmm. uh, Medicaid members. And uh, most of those visits are things that we can handle. Mm-hmm. So uh, about 85% of those are um, conditions that we can handle at home without the need for the patient to leave, without the need for them to, to wait. And uh, uh, sadly, a lot of people actually get sicker going to the emergency department, yep. waiting uh, in the waiting room and so forth. So both from the perspective of cost to the patient, cost to Medicaid, but also uh, health, we're, we think we're a much better program. And uh, so far, the patients seem to agree. So healthcare is a very complex and difficult <laughs> system to yeah. navigate. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> what I'm just thinking, like in my head right now, as I, as I listen to you, what are some of the challenges that you have had launching this? Some I of think, the biggest ones. Yeah, everything about this program is hard because it's yeah. complicated, and I yeah. think um, you know we're really grateful that the, uh, the 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 health plans in this state and many of the hospitals have been willing to partner with us and give this new program a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're pretty happy with how it's going so far, as are we. But um, healthcare is big and complicated, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it it's hard to to convince folks to try new stuff for good reason. You know, people's lives are at stake, people's health at stake. So we really had to go through a really long and arduous process to convince the insurance companies like United Healthcare that work with us or some of the hospitals like New Orleans East and Auctioner uh, that are our partners that this was uh, this is a program worth doing. Um, but, you know, we're really grateful that they've uh, given us a shot and uh, we're really confident that this is a, a major change in the, the way the healthcare system works here in New Orleans and hopefully in other parts of Louisiana and hopefully eventually in the rest of the country. How did you do that? How did you, you know, did you call them up and, and, and pitch them? Did you? How did you know where to start? So from an entrepreneurial perspective, I think the, um, the most important thing, and, and I think as we talked about before, this is the fourth company I've, I've founded or co-founded, and I've been a part of the founding teams as an investor in, in a number of companies. And I think the most important thing is always figuring out who you need to talk to mm-hmm. and then trying to really understand how they're thinking about the world. And I think that, you know, we started off having some some people who really understood the healthcare system around the company advising us. Um, I have a, my last company did a lot of things in insurance. So I kind of had some background in how insurance companies might think about the world. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking and listening and learning maybe the first six months we were doing it. Uh, you know, we're like every, we were like every, uh, Ben and I were like every entrepreneurial duo. We expected, you know, we'll we'll launch this thing, and you know, three months later we'll have our deal signs, and <laughs> two months after that we'll be launched and seeing patients, and we'll be in ten cities by the end of the first year or something. Uh, obviously, that's not um, the way uh, uh, this developed, or or really any company typically really develops. But um, you know, we spent really a solid year building out the plan. I think we had some stops and starts. I think 
we originally expected that we launch in partnership with New Orleans EMS, and we're still hoping to ultimately partner with New Orleans EMS. But uh, we realized that the payers and hospitals and, and the two-on-one system were maybe a, a smarter way to go about it. And um, so, so that was a, a, a big learning and just really digging in and understanding the system and talking to a lot of providers and patients and understanding, you know, what type of care was necessary and what programs we needed to build, I think, was the most important thing. And once we did that, the, the insurance companies were patient with us and spent enough time trying to understand really in detail what it was we were trying to do. And um, I think like a lot of people, I was pretty skeptical of how a lot of health insurers think about the world. And the reality is that I think they want to do a good job. They, they are under a lot of pressure financially and medically all the time. But if you show them a model uh, that can lead to potentially better outcomes for their patients and do it within their cost, uh, within their cost structure, or actually potentially in our case, really materially improving uh, cost, then um, uh, they'll work with you and they'll give you a shot. And, um, you know, we really believe as a company that really great care is less expensive than lousy care. And a lot of the system has been architected to make it hard to access care. I think there was a fear at one point that people that had too easy access would overutilize and make the system too expensive. And, you know, maybe we've rotated too far the other way. But we're, what we're seeing is that by making it easy for patients to access when they need care, it's helping to give them better care so that they have better outcomes so they don't need to use a lot of really expensive services. And everybody's better off if people are healthier. Yes, I definitely agree. Um, and better access to to that is very, very important. What What is your vision for Ready Responders? I think that that what, what Ben and I and our team really believe is that uh, there's this opportunity in between the great care that hospitals provide and the great care and ongoing care that primary care doctors provide. There's this huge need and opportunity to provide care uh, for those times in between when people are, you know, not feeling well, not sure what to do, when people are managing a chronic illness and trying to figure out how to adjust back to life at home. And we want to, we think we have a model that makes that work, that fits within the, the, what payers can afford to pay and makes patients' life better. And so our goal is to scale it as big as we can. And, and so we, we think it's working so far in New Orleans. And if we continue on course, uh, then we're going to try to bring it everywhere else. And um, we as a company will try to expand as much as we can. But if other people copy us in other markets, uh, we'll be happy. This is just something we want to see in the world uh, and that we really believe in. Yeah, there is certainly this huge gray area of like of healthcare um, service, I guess. I As someone with a chronic illness who's been through, I think, every level of the healthcare system. I can definitely uh, attest to that. Um, and I'm excited to see the, the potential there, that, 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 that is there. Um, so, okay, that still sounds like really big work to me. So mm-hmm. what has the past year and a half, year and a half now, been since you launched? Well, you launched in June, but up until that point, it was about a year and a half? Yeah, yeah. The company will be, it took us about a year and a half to get live. Yeah. So we're, we're not quite two years old. Yeah. Um, what does that look like for you? What have your days looked like? Um, not too similar is the short answer. <laughs> and, and, you know, fortunately, I think for, for me, I've, I've been through the uh, the journey of launching a company mm-hmm. uh, now four times now. And in some case, in some ways, more than that with some of the teams I've supported. And uh, really the beginning phase... I think people expect when you start a company 
that like the first day you're just going to be working like 20 hours a day and everything's going to be crazy. And usually the beginning, like the first, you know, two to six months are actually pretty boring and usually kind of terrifying because basically, you know, you've got an idea and you're learning that there's some things about that idea that are right and some things that are very wrong. And so some days you feel like a genius and then most of the days you kind of feel like an idiot. You're like, why the heck am I doing this? And then you start to to figure out what's going on. And there's a, I think people have this vision of what an entrepreneur is, is somebody that just has this like singular vision about how the world needs to look. And they just pound their fist on the table until everyone agrees. And the truth is, is there's some of that for sure. But mostly, you know, there's this adage, your customers tell you what business you're in. And for us, I think, you know, it's really the patient's that told us what business we're in and the payers told us what business we're in. And what's meant by that is that, you know, you have a vision for something, some way you want to maybe see the world be better or different, a product you want to provide, but you really need to spend the first part listening to people and learning as much as you can and iterating. And it's not the, the original idea for a company. I think a lot of people are like, wow, that was such a great idea. And it's, it's true, but like most of what makes a company work are the, you know, 1,500 little decisions you make along the way. Um, that actually help you deliver what you need to. And uh, in this particular company, I've been really lucky to have a great co-founder um, and a bunch of other people. And like I said, every day is different. Um, and, uh, you know, that's good and bad in life. But, uh, you know, it's it's never been boring. <laughs> and we've had some real ups and some really big challenges. Uh, you know, New Orleans is a great place to live and a great place to do business. And sometimes it's a really hard place to do business, too. And I think we've seen every side of it. Yeah, we we were talking a little bit about that before we got started, um, about how difficult it is as an entrepreneur um, to get investment for Mm -hmm. your idea or your company. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, uh, you know, as I keep saying, this isn't the first time I've done it. Yeah. You're a seasoned entrepreneur. Yeah, and I have a reasonable track record. I certainly haven't built Google or anything, but uh, (laughs) I've had a couple couple pretty good wins, and uh, that makes it a lot easier to raise capital. and. Mm familiarity the process does and you know for me as an entrepreneur I you know we're lucky to, I'm lucky enough to have some contacts all around the country that which is where most of our capital came from we had some great local investors the folks around the Riverbend group uh, Christy Brown the chairman of Tabasco and David Barksdale and Walter Isaacson and uh, we've had some like I said some really great local investors but the bulk of our capitals come from people like Founders Fund the you know Silicon Valley firm that backed Facebook and Airbnb and Dropbox and uh Steve Case's fund Revolution, which really actually is pretty focused on investing in outside of the the core venture capital markets in New York, California, and and Boston, where I used to live. Um, so we've been able to do it, but it is the reality is that it's hard here, and it's hard pretty much everywhere but the big markets right now. Why is that? Why do you think that is for New Orleans? I think there's a why is it for New Orleans mm-hmm. or why is it for? Everybody? I mean, so the first for thing to note is that New Orleans isn't that different from everywhere but New York, Boston. Uh, and uh, Silicon Valley and to some extent L.A. and a little bit Austin, Texas, and D.C. I mean, 75% of all the venture capital in the country goes to Silicon Valley, um, the area around Boston and the surrounding area in New York. Um, So most of the entrepreneurship and most of the venture capital is happening there. There's a few reasons for that. I think one is just that the talent tends to cluster where the capital is and vice versa. You build these uh, what economists call clusters, and, you know, Massachusetts, where I used to live, has big universities with lots of big tech ideas. And then because of that, we built lots of venture capital funds. And because of that, launch lots of entrepreneurs want to launch their business there. And same phenomenon exists in Silicon Valley. And, you know, it's a 
more recent phenomenon in my career, but now in New York and in L.A. Um, New Orleans doesn't really have that. It has great potential as an entrepreneurial city. Um, there, there's no more original and creative place in the United States. And, you know, really creative ideas come from, um, you know, creative companies come from creative ideas. Um, we don't have the capital base there here yet, but we do have the potential to build something amazing. And I think that, you know, if we looked at the early internet, when I started my first companies, the cost of just building a website, you needed three engineering teams of five for six to nine months just to build a website. Mm -hmm. And now building a website is like trivial. It's a two-hour phenomenon. You don't even need an engineer to do <laughs> yeah. it. And so you start to think about what are the next round of ideas that are going to be important. And sure, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in biology and battery technology. And you know maybe some folks from Tulane will play in that. But if you look at the, the sorts of ideas that have built the biggest companies, digital ideas and so forth, there's no particular reason why they need to happen in New York and San Francisco. Um, and, you know, Nobody thought that in 1980, nobody, or really 1975, let's say, nobody thought that San Francisco was going to produce Apple and everything else. True. Um, you know, places like Pittsburgh and Detroit were seen as engineering hubs. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the culture and the creativity and the openness to new ideas of San Francisco allowed it to become the premier place for startups. And New Orleans certainly has that potential. Um, in order to achieve that potential, um, there's going to have to be capital, which there isn't enough of yet here. And um, New Orleans is, is going to be wrestling with its, on the one hand, the creativity and potential is a great place to live. On the other hand, some of the challenges around infrastructure um, that are somewhat unique with some of the cities we're competing for talent with. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hearing you correct, it's New Orleans needs capital and infrastructure, meaning? Yeah, I would say capital uh, infra and infrastructure are important. And, um, you know, uh, it's it's always fighting the perception of of real political risk, um, of you know instability and institutions that aren't always as accommodative to uh, to new businesses and new ideas as they might be, and so I think that's really what New Orleans is up against. But the potential is that it's a uniquely wonderful place to live. That's why I live here. I could live anywhere I wanted mm -hmm. uh, after my last company and. You know, I came here from Boston for a reason. I came here because I like it here mm -hmm. and uh, because I, I really believe in the community and, and what this city stands for. Um, I think to achieve that potential and to fall on the track of, say, in Austin, Texas, uh, in terms of becoming an uh, entrepreneurial center, um, those are really the challenges. It's capital, talent, um, infrastructure, things like that. Yes, it seems to be a, a recurring conversation and theme that keeps coming up um, with many of the entrepreneurs that yeah, I Yeah, but capital will to. come. Capital yeah. will come here, I think, if, if there's things to invest in and wins. And mm -hmm. I think what Patrick is doing at Lucid mm -hmm. um, is just an amazing company, and, and he's not just an amazing entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that you know he could be the beginning of a trend. You're starting to see some of the executives there. I've seen pitches for a couple business plans of theirs. And uh, as that company continues to do well, uh, you know, one of the, the best sources of capital is successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. And uh, one of the best sources of management teams uh, and talent are people who have seen a, a great company get built. So, you know, if you want to see uh, New Orleans, you know, five to ten years from now start to feel like it's on its way to being Austin, then we need Lucid and we need like ten more of those. Yeah. If that happened, then 
we'd really be getting into something. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been thinking about the relationship um, between entrepreneurs and investors um, because, you know, I think sometimes people get the idea that as an entrepreneur, you sort of do what, do what you want. You're your own boss. You don't have anyone to answer to. But that's not true at all. No, it's not. And we've had this conversation around our company with some of the early people, and, and I've had this conversation with a lot of entrepreneurs. And your co-founder or your founder or co-founder, and then you raise money. And you transition from being a business owner to someone who has an ownership stake in a business and is also an employee of that business. And you need to understand that, that when you take on other people's capital, um, that you're running the business as a, with a fiduciary obligation and you are not guaranteed a job there. And you, it is not up to you. Your, your interest is not the only interest anymore. And I think that's really important. And I think there's a lot of things that are really important for entrepreneurs to understand about working with investors that I've learned the hard way over the years. The first thing is that um, my mentor told me at the beginning of my career, he said, choose your investors as if your happiness depends on it because it does. And that has been true 100% of the time. Almost every time I've chosen right and the couple times I've you know, had this nagging doubt about someone and I went for it anyway, didn't work. Ended up being a disaster. So that's really important. The second is that as an entrepreneur, you know, you're an entrepreneur because you're optimistic. So most of the time, you know, if you're really good, then things will go right most of the time. But then sometimes no matter what, they're going to go badly. And I think most people only really want to communicate when things are going well. They only want to communicate good news. When there's bad news, they kind of like, they're like, all right, I'm not going to like email or call my investors because things are going to get better in like a month and then I'll be able to tell them then. And that's absolutely the opposite of what you need to do. You should communicate consistently no matter what. Um, and, you know, whether I've been an investor or running companies, the investors, when you communicate consistently, whether it's sending out a letter once a quarter or, you know, making sure you talk to everyone once a quarter and just give people an update, then if things go well, they'll be even more supportive and helpful. And if things go poorly, they'll be supportive and helpful. But if you don't talk to people for nine months and you call them up and be like, hey, we're about to run out of money uh, and we need like $200,000, like you're going to hear crickets. And you should hear crickets because you're not actually uh, communicating and being a partner. And so your investors are your partner. They want you to succeed just as bad as you do. Um, and, uh, you know, you should communicate with them. And, you know, having sat on the other side of the table a few times, I mean, I think I talked a little bit about, you know, not trying to be too overbearing. But, um you know, as an investor, your job is to do everything you can to, to help the company succeed and to recognize just how much the entrepreneur is putting in personally, emotionally, and mentally and to, and to respect that. And I think that um, we're lucky at our company that we've got great investors. Um, I've seen what great investors are like and what not-so-great investors are like, and um, it's a hell, heck of a lot better to work with people. So, um, But for entrepreneurs, particularly first-time entrepreneurs, your investors will not get annoyed that you reach out too much. They will not get annoyed if you ask too much advice. Uh, they will not get annoyed if you over-communicate. Um, they will get annoyed if you disappear. And if things are going badly and you're embarrassed, communicate more, right? Because they may have an idea about how to help or they may have a contact that could be a, a sale to replace the account you lost or whatever it is. So always communicate with your investors. Don't disappear with money. <laughs> it, it happens more often than it doesn't happen. Yeah, actually, I think that is a fantastic few 
pieces of advice, some some real gems there, um, because I do think there's a lot of um, vagueness and sort of um, misunderstanding between the relationships between the relationships of investors and entrepreneurs. So I'm really glad that you broke that down um, for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, and, and let me just add a couple other sort of things around that line. Like I think that you know a lot of times like investors like uh, entrepreneurs when they particularly when they're like looking back over you know, where they got to where they are, particularly if things are going well, they make it sound like their trajectory is always up and to the right. Like the whole time everything was going great and it was just like a natural progression. That's never the case. It's not the case in any company I've had. The ones that have worked well, the ones that have it, this one is off to the best start of any company post-launch, the best start of any company I've had in my career, but it took longer to get launched than any company I've had in my career. So like in some ways this has been the hardest and worst and then now it, you know, is on its way maybe being the best, but um, if, if the narrative in your mind is that it, it, every day we're going to, you know, everything's going to go exactly how I expect, then you're wrong. And if you have investors that think that they're the wrong investors, the truth is you're on it together and just communicate. Um, uh, so that's an important piece of advice. Yeah. And all of the many entrepreneurs I have spoken to, not one has ever said that <laughs> it was just an upward trajectory no, and things were going great. Uh, I'll tell you the other thing. I remember I, I gave a talk about this after a conversation I had with a young entrepreneur, and I think one of the most important things that people do not talk about in entrepreneurship with entrepreneurs is that it is essential that founders not ego-identify with their company. Mm-hmm. So people will sometimes say to me, it's, it's your baby. I'm like, it's, it's not a child. Like It's a company. Being an entrepreneur is a great job if you like it, and it, it is a passionate way to spend your life. And your, you know, in my case, in this particularly this company, working on a problem that's really important is amazing. It's I wouldn't want to do anything else. But it's not like who you are as a person, and that emotional churn can eat up entrepreneurs. Um, the idea that like the days, you know, that things are going well, all your friends hate you because all of a sudden you think you're Steve Jobs. And then when you hit a couple bumps in the road, you, you like end up spending the whole weekend stuck in bed because you're so bummed out. And I've yeah. been there. It's my first company and even in my second company. And, and you know, at other tougher times in my career, I've been in both of those states. And that's the most important thing to avoid as an entrepreneur is it's a great opportunity to do something that is incredibly rewarding. Uh, if it goes well, it can make you a, a ton of money and provide a great lifestyle and so forth. But it's not who you are. It's what you're doing. And I think it's just so important for people to remember that because the otherwise it, it's actually too taxing for almost everybody. Yes, and we're I, seeing this even with Elon Musk right now. I mean, the dude yeah. is the dude is cracking up in public. Yeah, and it's like, man, like you know, uh, it's just crazy to watch it. But yeah. it's such a common part of entrepreneurship, and one of the things that in order to really have the entrepreneurial culture that I think we want to continue, I think as a entrepreneurial community, we need to be more conscious of. I'm really glad that you said that because I have often heard from entrepreneurs, you know, it's my baby. Um, but I think it's great what you said. It's your, it's, it's not who you are. It's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so definitely want that to be a, a takeaway, key takeaway from this conversation for our listeners. Um, so we like to ask all of our um, guests what their mantras are. So what's what's Justin's mantra? What's words that you're living by right now? Hmm. Uh, Mantra. It's hard for me to answer that question, I guess. But uh, <laughs> you can think about it if you need to. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, it, it. I don't. I've never had like a 
like a fixed mantra in my life. I can tell you what I've been spending more of my time thinking about um, lately, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as a person and a, a company executive and also, you know, a, a, a citizen at this time in American life. And that's really trying to be a lot more careful about listening mm-hmm. um, and a lot more careful about, you know, recognizing the, the complexity uh, in the world we live in and the complexity of everybody's perspective. And um, so that, I think, is a, something that I think I've been spending a lot more time. And, you know, I, I it was kind of interesting. You know, I, I spent a few weeks back back home in the Northeast over the summer because uh, it's just, like, too hot to stay here <laughs> all the time. I mean, <laughs> I grew up in Boston. I was like, in August, it was like, are you You're kidding? Dying. Like, is this, is this real? <laughs> anyway, so I, I went back home. You know, my, my family still loves up there. And just talking to people um, up there and realizing just how, whether it's, like, just perspectives on the world or culture or politics or whatever, just how many, like, little bubbles we have around mm-hmm. ourselves. And one of the things I really love about New Orleans is that you know, it's a pretty small city, but there's a lot of different ideas and views about how to live your life, and um, and and I find that exciting. And and the more I, I've internalized that idea of, of really maybe being a more careful listener, and you know, trying not to react to the things that sound offensive to me at first, um, to actually really listen to them um, has been important. And I, I don't always live to that like up to that. No one does, but um, you know. That's sort of where I'm at right now, I guess. Yeah, but you do your best day in, day out. I, I really appreciate that because, you know, it's my, I listen to people for a living. It's yeah. My, it's my job. Um, I've always um, enjoyed it, um, and I'm glad to, to hear you say that because I do think it's so easy, especially now, to just get so caught up and bombarded with all of the noise. And so to like to really to be fully present and to really listen to where someone is coming from and and to even go, I would say, beyond that and really seek to understand where they're coming from. Um, I think it's, you know. It's yeah, in order to, old. you are not obliged to agree with somebody just because yeah. you listen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't hurt yeah. you to listen to somebody. Yeah. That's never, there's no physical pain associated with that. Yeah. Usually, I guess. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, but yes, a, a, a greater awareness, um, you would say. Um, well, any any parting words for our listeners? Any you know takeaways that you would want them to leave with? No, but uh, New Orleans is a great place to live and start a company. That's <laughs> basically, uh, that's it. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, thank you for joining us, Justin, with Ready Responders. And if you want to read and hear more stories from more entrepreneurs like Justin, um, visit us at thedistillery.life. Um, subscribe to the podcast. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you all for listening.